gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 70, the review segment for Friday, May 15th, 2015. I really just want to make vroom vroom noises, but I think I probably did that for the Fast and Furious 7 review. Like Now you can make ago. broom broom noises like that little girl from that Vine video. I don't even know. What no, you no, don't know what I'm talking about? about? You're not up with the Vine? What if I just make electric guitar noises like the... Uh, like the electric guitar player who is very prevalent in Mad Max Fury Road. Wow. That's what we were doing. That, you, okay, fine. Make make those bugs. make those noises. <laughs> yes. Right? Okay. All is right in the world. Thank you. <laughs> My world uh, is Katie Guitar Mouth and I'll be the war yeah. drums. Oh, okay. You'll be the drums and I'll be the war guitar and together. David can be snorting like a Morton Joe. Bom, 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 bom. I live, I die, I live again. Okay. <laughs> what We're are we talking about? Mad Max Fury Road, which is uh, the fourth Mad Max film. It is directed by George Miller. This is the first live action movie he's made since Babe. Um, and the first live Babe action Pig movie- in the City. Yeah, excuse me. Babe Pig in the City. And uh, the first live action movie he's made about people since Lorenzo's Oil, which I realized today. And I just rewatched Lorenzo's Oil. Very touching. Yeah. I wept. I wept. I mean, it's no. it's such an interesting movie, and it has a lot in common with Mad Max Fury Road. I would I would suggest people watch it in advance because both are very stripped to their bare bones and like don't give you any information you don't need, and they'll jump ahead even little incremental bits of time where you'd normally have filler and obvious expositions dragging you along, and there's none of that in Lorenzo's Oil. It's very cut and dry science and all relying completely on performance and the way George Miller shoots that movie. It's it's really quite astonishing. Well, uh, and thank I you find, for joining uh, us for our review of Lorenzo's yeah. Oil. We'll be back next <laughs> it has a beautiful score. Anyway, Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah, so, there, are two, I mean, there were two dream sequences about children in both of these films. I just want to say that. Fair enough. Uh, as you indicated, though, the plot of this movie is pretty, basically a sentence. Uh, there is a car, being a big truck being driven by a woman named Furiosa allegedly to go get supplies for this colony, but is it in fact filled with uh, yeah, wives? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, if we're gonna have a spoiler Wait, section, no, 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 no. If we're gonna have a spoiler section, let's wow. let's put the Revi- the details reviewers take note I, for David interrupting me in the annals. No, I I feel very strongly about this because you don't need to include. I don't feel like you need to include that information in the basic plot. This synopsis. is so odd that you don't want to talk about spoilers because you think it gets micro. But no, then I'm this saying is, that if we are going to have a spoiler break. section, what okay. Katie is alluding to should be included in that. Because what I knew about this movie going in is that it was effectively a reboot of George Miller's Mad Max series. And it operates like the James Bond films in that they're essentially sliding a new actor into an old role. It's Tom Hardy here instead of Mel Gibson. Unlike the James Bond films, well, I guess how the technology progresses in those the world is the same. It has uh, it has become a lot more um, broken down than the old Max uh, Mad Max films that we're familiar with. This resembles much more of a new alien society than it does this uh, the ruins of our old society, and that's reflected in the shooting locations, in the movie desert, and the saturation, the color, etc. Mad Max is kidnapped by this guy Morton Joe, is big and scary, and runs society there in this giant mountain peak that is fueled by the the 
the life forces of the people who live there. He gives them water. He takes their breast milk in this hideous contraption, um, and they relies on their blood. Mad Max is a blood bag. Um, well, Morton Joe doesn't rely on his no, blood. No. His war boys, the exactly. soldiers, his mutant soldiers who have some sort of illness that they require blood transfusions all the time. Nuclear poisoning? Yeah, they, something like that. Yeah. And the whole movie also, appears to be radiated with colors. That's yeah. a very well said. Um, and also, everyone is a uh, very inbred. They make no bones about it. People in this movie who a lot of warts. Yes, have a lot not of wart photography. Some of them have names. <laughs> Yes, it's this true. movie may have the greatest names of any film ever made, and I do not say oh, that yes. lightly. Um, but all you really need to know about the plot is that uh, after this Gilliam-esque opening sequence in which Max is captured, he is strapped to the front of a car as a, as a blood bag to feed Morton Joe's troops. Uh, Imperator Furiosa, who is played by Charlize Theron, is sort of Morton Joe's deputy, his, or his best driver. She's a one-armed, head-shaved badass driver of this big rig and she Forehead is covered in wheel grease it seems something mm-hmm. she also has a robot arm terrifying. let's be clear she does have a robot arm uh indeed and she is sent out to lead a caravan to go to uh bullet town or gas town or one of she's those going places. Both, i think <laughs> yeah, to, get, <laughs> to deliver the guzzoline uh, right. just to be clear um and she has an ulterior motive and uh the the car that Mad Max is strapped, Max Rokotansky is strapped to the front of, is sent after her. Um, and he is unwittingly involved in this epic chase. Uh, and how the story unfolds from there, I found to be a delightful surprise. It does make me, I, before we started recording, I was argumentative about the need for a spoiler <laughs> section. I think if we're going to stop the plot synopsis there, there's a very important element of the movie um, thematically, which we need to address, and I'm glad we'll have the spoiler section for that. But I will oh, say my. that our spoiler section, um, if, if you're okay knowing a little bit about movies before you see them, if you watch the trailers for Mad Max, I'd say our spoiler section is probably going to be safe. Pretty sure most people watch the trailers since everyone was losing their minds. I did not. I watched like, the trailers with go. one eye where I just saw the craziness but didn't really see the later trailers that indicated how the plot would develop from there. I didn't even know sort of what side Charlize Theron was on. And I found the, the, this very linear arrow-like film that goes uh, in one direction is pretty straightforward. Um, what few plot surprises it offers were new to me and landed very strongly. Anyway, I've said enough. Katie, what did you think? What, oh, my God. Judging from what we can and can't talk about pre- and post-spoiler section. Uh, I think I loved everything, both pre- and post-spoiler <laughs> section. This movie pretty much had me from the very beginning, which is, I think, a shot that's been in one of the teasers of Tom Hardy as Max standing with his back to the camera, and we kind of watch a lizard crawl toward him until he stomps it under his foot in just this very fluid motion that kind of... It, it's it, That's a mesh of a real actor and a CGI lizard and a very real landscape that really sets the tone for the amount of uh, tangible things versus CGI in this he movie. He also eats it. He also does eat it. it. Yeah, well, there's a lot. I think more disgusting things are consumed. I'm so. There, it, this movie's so disgusting. And got, I love yeah. all the grime and I yeah. love all the warts and all the. Oh, it's just so filthy. Waterworld opens with Kevin Costner drinking his own urine. Ah, yeah, there you uh, go. Waterworld is a movie that its DNA seeps into this film quite a bit, I'd say. Like water. Um, <laughs> I think the ambitions, they share an ambition, but certainly the DNA for, of Waterworld is not in this movie. If no, anything, the, Waterworld the, is, is taking and stealing from I George Miller's previous I wrote a piece uh, for Little White Lies that's yet to be published about the films that I felt influenced Fury Road, and chief among them, 
perhaps most literally, uh, is a William A. Wellman Western called Westward the Women. Um, and we'll talk about that later. But Terry Gilliam, James Cameron, it's some great synthesis of the two, I felt. Yeah, no, the opening sequence is very uh, Gilliam-like, as you were saying. There's a, there's a, I, I think it, the camera is undercranked in these sequences. It's kind of moving at hyperspeed in this. And I also know that he dropped some frames out of it. And there's all this... There's, he's throwing a lot of different filmmaking techniques at the wall. He's blending practical effects and CGI and weird makeup. And it's all at the service of this, as David said, arrow straight story. And it's the, the smartest thing you can do if you're creating a really big, bold sci-fi world like this, which is that you just make the story really simple so we have time to kind of grasp everything that's going on and appreciate things and marvel at Charlize Theron's robot arm because we're not concerned about figuring out how the plot is going. This is a reason I defend Avatar, speaking of James Cameron. You set, you spend all oh, the money yeah. to set up this world, <laughs> and then you give us a really straightforward story. The story in Mad Max Fury Road, I think, is a little more inventive than Avatar, which we can get into. Um, but the, the thrill of the story, the way that the movie kind of kicks off with this escape sequence and then jumps into maybe a 40-minute car chase, it feels like, that just gets more and more thrilling as it goes on. It never lets up, and it's so full of imagination. Ah. And just when you think... Well, hang on. It never lets up in terms of either action beats or imagination or emotional beats. Or it, there's something that goes into every scene that you look at it and you think, wow, they really could have done this a million different easy ways. And they've taken the hard way and it is worth it. Every well, well, even when the movie lets up, I mean, yes, this is not a slow scene. Yeah, there are, this there is not a constant. Moments. This is not yes. an A to B chase scene from beginning to end. But even when it slows down, you know, the the thick, muddy desert of. Namib, uh, or whatever Namib, is it? Namib? Namib. Yeah. Namib. Um, I mean, it's always keeping them down. It's it's always swelling. It's always disgusting. It's always the terrain is always part of the film. So even when it slows down, they're trudging through something. They're still moving. It's still about motion. It's still about getting to point B, which I like. You can take yeah. breaths, and it's still very painterly too. I mean, every frame of this movie is is something extravagant, even if in its slowest moments. Not every sequence is like this um whirlwind hellscape i in in my review i compared it to have you ever seen that john martin painting the great day of his wrath this po- apocalyptic vision of hell um it just like it's amazing you could take still frames of this and put it in a museum they're beautiful but not everything is like that crazy storm some there's there's night scenes or there's just grime and oil and smoke plumes coming up and and all the angles miller picks is still really energized and still really painterly in in my mind like even over the shoulder shots or even insert shots what i love about this movie too is there's so much visual information there's so much uh this is very much a story-driven movie, not a plot-driven movie. And it's a relief after, and I like the Avengers Age of Ultron. We talked about it in our review last week. But, um, you know, that is about MacGuffins, truly, and plot, plot, plot. And here it is about story, like, let's just kick this thing off and have characters and have setups and great callbacks and visual information that all pays off later in the movie. I appreciate you bringing up the Avengers because uh, I didn't have to do it. Because this movie (laughs) really is an antidote to, I think, what blockbuster cinema has become in this country um, in that it is not plastic, it is not plot, it is not so... um, mercilessly plot-driven, as Patches 
was uh, articulating. It is organic. It is you can smell it, you can taste it, even if you don't always want to. It's sleek uh, and it is absolutely brutal. I, I said in my review um, and drink every time somebody says that. I guess um, I didn't review it, so <laughs> I promise not to again. It, it feels but like I will drink. George Miller absconded to the Namibian desert with 150 million dollars of Warner Brothers money and sent them dailies like uh, ransom notes or body parts from a hostage. I mean, it really, it's like, how did this movie happen in the studio system? It is so gnarly. Um, and the action is so phenomenal. Uh, my, I mean, I, I just want to say, because I don't think I've said it in this segment that I think this movie is, is incredible. Um, and really, uh, every summer it feels like I get one if I'm lucky and we all know how much I love Godzilla last summer and, and, uh, you know, it's only in May now. So who knows what we're in for, but, uh, uh, yeah, I, I really over the moon about this movie for reasons that we'll talk about even in more detail in the next segment. Uh, my one reservation, uh, or two really, uh, the first is that you know George Miller has been talking a lot about how there are so many more cuts in this film than there are in the earlier really? Mad Max films. Yeah. So many, many times more. And you feel that. It is too choppy, even though the spatial coherency is just, you know infinitely superior to that which you see in in like a marvel movie for example um i mean just untold times better uh it's still these locations are so incredible and uh the action is so brilliantly conceived that you just wish we could get a clearer view of it from time there is uh, to speak to that i mean i think during the first big stretch of of car chases when the only moment i really felt kind of geographically lost at a certain point and part of it is because all the cars end up looking very similar when yes, you're moving that, that quickly great. and and the terrain looks so similar uh it's hard to tell except there are spiky cars that helped me right the, the cars cars, from yeah. the cars that ate paris by peter weir <laughs> which are repurposed here uh, as an homage to the australian cinema of the 1970s um but yeah i mean so that was one thing and and uh there are a few directors you know that that made this film possible uh in the films they made that probably would have uh, found an opportunity to to go wide once or twice. It really would have gotten a long way for me, just having a little bit of room to breathe. Um, that's something, just as a recent example, that I love so much about Godzilla last year. Uh, but this is a, a quibble in a movie that really grabs you by the throat and drags you along the desert for two hours. Uh, the other is just that the climactic car chase, which is another humdinger of a, uh, a long sequence, however long it is, I'm not exactly sure, doesn't quite climax as... Uh, spectacularly as i wish it could it, it sort of deflates rather than um the fine the final build. kills yeah the, yeah the climactic moments are are on the same level as a lot of the other action preceding it but luckily the action preceding it is pretty damn crazy yeah. and fun um yeah. and what's amazing here is that tom hardy and charlize theron are i think they're really good in the movie oh my god they're just about so being driven good. and about encapsulating something like having a characterization having motivation and and sustaining something and then changing throughout this film um, i'm surprised that through all this chaos they can really pierce it and be kind of father mother figures without having to rely on romance and just mm-hmm. it's a very interesting dynamic that they share with this, this troop they gather not to spoil anything he may say fewer words than kurt russell's character did in soldier <laughs> um it's he I does think, a lot of mm, he's yeah, been six months yeah. in the mm-hmm. desert shooting this movie he probably said on average less than one word a day uh and uh the character doesn't suffer for it that's sort of who mad max is and charlie theron and nicholas holt uh and morton joe and all the other people who are in this movie 
um, do such an incredible job of picking up that <laughs> that slack. He's also yeah, very. Well, I, but, oh, go go go. I don't think there really is a slack for him not speaking because I think what I realize in this more than most of what I've seen Tom Hardy in is how expressive he is, how little he can say and really get across a lot of feeling. I think I was. I, I talk about this with Michelle Williams a lot. It made me want to see him in Michelle Williams in some movie in the wilderness, saying five lines of dialogue the whole time. I was and Patches, you made the argument that is correct that he was also really good in Locke. Um, but I do feel like this is the best I've seen Tom Hardy since Bronson, like the first movie I ever saw him in. That's he really crazy. blew me away in this. Uh, this Means War. Hello. Oh, yeah, um, I saw This Means War. It is garbage. I, I wanted to throw our colleague Jordan Hoffman under the bus, oh, under yes. the 18 wheeler for a second, <laughs> because it. we were talking this week. He put me on the spot. He is now in Cannes, so he won't hear this. This is good. Um, he, he asked me, you know, like if I had to choose Avengers or this, what would I really choose to like watch again? And Avengers to- 1? To, I'm sorry, Age of Ultron. Oh. Um, and I think he prefers Age of Ultron. I hope he doesn't mind me saying that. But he he just finds that more comedic. He finds it well-rounded as opposed to this, which is just, you know, barreling down to its conclusion at, at 100 miles per hour. And I said, I thought this movie had a lot of comedy in it. There's a lot of levity in this movie. There's Nicholas very, Holt is really funny. Go back There's to some, what, how Katie opened this segment, talking about the guitar player. Right. Oh I mean, God. yeah, there's silliness so in the imagery, which also makes sense. I, I really enjoy having, you know, the the like basically the trumpeters of the the drummers of the Revolutionary War following these mm-hmm. or any army, really. I mean, it makes sense that they would want to be loud and be a war party. But I also I, I, there's a great scene where Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron are in the front of this giant truck thing and he is holding a gun on her and he's just like trying to do eight things at once mm-hmm. which is this whole movie's modus operandi and and he it's hilarious I mean he just yeah. like I haven't seen Tom Hardy not since this means war be yeah. that funny with a gun and making faces I mean it's very funny yeah it's uh there's there's a lot I'm, I'm really excited to see it again because I feel like We've been talking about how much visual information there is. Like in a relatively simple plot, I really can't wait to see it again because I feel like there's so much to get out of it on a second viewing. Yeah, well, let's, uh, for the sake of our spoiler segment, we haven't really scratched the surface of what this movie is about. Yeah, yeah let's, let's bong our uh, our, okay. our well, spoiler before, gong. Before we do that, I would inc- I, and I hope you would join me in saying this. I would encourage everyone listening to this movie to follow in George Miller's wishes and see the film in 2D and not the wretched 3D, which I'm Has sure he actually said that? That's interesting he because that. he wanted to shoot this movie in 3D. I but wonder what happened with that. Well, whatever the reason that it didn't happen, and I assume it's, it's uh, logistic or budget-related, the fact is that he didn't shoot it in 3D, and so he doesn't want people to see it post-converted. I, and I think all of us, had the good fortune of seeing it in 2D. I and had can, no idea it was in 3D. Yeah, I can only yeah people don't really show us movies in 3D anymore. Thank God. Yeah. Um, but can only imagine how difficult some of this would be to track and how your mind would, your face would melt off like at the end of Raiders of the Lost It Ark also wouldn't be as bright. I mean, I don't know about yeah. you guys, but I saw this in a pretty pristine digital exhibition and it looked incredible. I mean, the colors, there's so much color and there's so much contrast in the photography. Uh, who Didn't they, they pull someone out of retirement to... to Shoot this thing, John yeah. Seal. I, mm-hmm. I want to say John Seal yeah, shot this I movie. That, I believe that. Um, and he was retired, but George Miller was like, "Please, goddamn it, shoot the shit out of this movie." And he certainly did. I mean, it looks incredible. Yeah, and George Miller has thrown all these other post-apocalyptic movies under the bus in this really satisfying way, talking about how they're all kind of blues and blacks, and you know, basically subtweeting Zack Snyder, <laughs> which is very enjoyable. I guess. I uh, 
I guess. Oh, he go. got sick. He got sick of the lack of color, so he wanted to make something really colorful, right. and he really succeeded. Uh, yeah, I guess John Seal did not want to go out on Prince of Persia and the Tourist as his last <laughs> movies, so he was easily <laughs> persuaded to come back. Uh, should we? Should we gong yes. and, sure. and go to the spoilers here? Gong. Yeah. Although, uh, oh, oh, I was going to do a tease of what's coming. Oh, what's coming? Whatever. Well, we're going to talk about how this movie is feminist. So, if that intrigues you. The summer blockbuster. You should listen to the spoiler <laughs> section. Uh, Eve Ensler consulted on the set of this movie. Hey, that's my scoop. Uh, who it's cares? Like she did a whole interview in time already. You yeah, know, but after my interview. Come yeah. on. Oh, well then. I Eve, got the scoop. Eve Ensler, they consulted <laughs> on this movie so that they can say Eve Ensler consulted on this movie. Let's talk hey, about David. what's in the movie. Hey, da- hey David. Hey, Let me you? finish the point <laughs> Don't poop on my scoop. to make. And, uh, don't write off what I was going to say from the very beginning. It's not very feminist of you. <laughs> yeah, stop uh, hating. Eve Ensler consulted on this movie. What she actually added to it as cinema is debatable, but the fact that she was there at all to consult on the role of these uh, kidnapped wives or these wives who were slaves and who are being taken to freedom by Charlize Theron, I think is really indicative of the amount of thought that has gone into this story. I think the themes of the movie can, how deep they are, you know, kind of about whether it is just about people wanting to be people and deserving freedom, or if it's deeper than that, you can debate that. But I think a lot of thought went into the themes of it, which is another way that it gets away with being this really simple story because the story it tells is really worthwhile. David, now what would you like to say? Explain why. I just that whole events or thing annoyed me because Patches did it and everything he does annoys me. No, I'm kidding. That's true. That's probably true. uh, No, I (laughs) I did not know that that was your scoop, but I did read it, and I do think that it's valuable in. Well, I, again, I sort of feel like it spoils what happens in the movie, but I do think, as Katie said, we exactly, are in the spoilers. Section, it, so. it is indicative of the of the the thought behind this film. Um, you know, just in case you're listening to this because you wanted to and you haven't seen the movie, yes, the the cargo that Furiosa is taking away from Morton Joe uh, are his wives, including one of whom is very pregnant, um, and they are making a break for it, and they are driving towards, to go even deeper into further territory, a supposed place that is run by women, and I think that's The green place. The Although green you place. don't know that it's run by women until you get there. Okay, but that's what I found so fascinating about this movie, is that it's not a, a humdrum tale of female empowerment, however valuable that might be as a, as a simple message. What I took away from it is that it is a very pointed plea for female leadership and for female mm-hmm. rule um, mm-hmm. and it is making not just saying that you know women deserve equal rights and should be free and etc which I think in 20 the 21st century ought to be self-evident um, although that may be wishful thinking uh, I think what it is saying is that men need to be saved from themselves that we when left to our own devices uh, when left to our own podcasts even can tear yeah. each other apart um, and the, the movie really conflates violence with madness. And uh, I think it's clearly, it's not just that the women need to escape this, but that in order to have some hope for a future, uh, uh, for Mother Earth, so to speak, to uh, return to health, we need women to sort of lead the way forward. And that's what I found so interesting about the movie, that extra gear, so to speak, that, that the, the movie embraces, um, that you really get with that green place and uh, with what happens with all the women and how extremely capable they are and the people who they're fighting. Um, after, you know, in, in The Road Warrior, you had uh, Lord Humongous, who, um, you know, there's a really interesting queer subtext in what's happening there, 
but that doesn't really distract from the, the fact of how destructive their society is. Uh, I think that this is really further something that was brought into Beyond Thunderdome with Tina Turner's character and updates it for the 21st century, and, and it's hard to extrapolate from, or uh, sorry, to extricate from Hillary Clinton's inevitable campaign. Um, Although uh, this movie has been, the story has been developed since 2001. It has, so it has. Can't, can't put too much credit on Hillary. Uh, like, I, but I do see what you mean. Hillary cannot run on the, without me, there would be no Fury Road ticket. But Although, uh, <laughs> that would get my vote. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I thought, and I'll turn the floor back over to Patches and Katie. Uh, I thought that was um, not just, and it sounds simple enough um, and can be summed up in, in a sentence or two, but there is a lot to be said about how palpably it's executed and how it becomes so much more than lip service. You actually uh, get the, the, you feel the madness of the men. You understand what the women can bring to the table. You're not just rooting for them because uh, your head tells you that they should be free and that's all people right. are, but like you, you probably understand the good that it would do to have them rise to power. I, and, I completely oh, agree, yeah, but I did want to say that I think it's a little ignorant, self-absorbed. Don't put the blinders up to Evans alert, David, because what you can... Knowing that information after seeing the film, um, it, it becomes clear where her advice really amplified certain details in this film. And I think this is a movie about uh, victims and um, uh, and all sorts of victims uh, and how that imagery comes through. You know, I love that we don't re- we're not told that um, Rosie Huntington Whiteley's character was raped. Uh, and and you know and she's been scratching herself. She has all these scratches, and we really only see her pregnant belly. Like I love the scene where Who is that Morton is revealed. Joe having consensual sex with? Well, yeah, no, the, but I, that's I the point, right? Assumed she'd been raped. No, you you should assume that she's been raped. That's the whole point, right? I mean that. Yes. But the reveal is oh, the that belly. We don't have to be told. There's I no see. moment where, the, but that set sets in. Like everyone understands when that belly is revealed that. She has been raped, and these women are acting in different ways, like different types of victims. One of the girls wants to go back into a Morton Joe's. She's like, why don't we just turn back and live the lives that we were living because we would be at least alive then. Um, and that's conflicted. That's crazy. Uh, or is it? You know, there's a lot of questions to ask, and I think it's textured in that way. It finds room between all these crazy action scenes to to raise those questions. And also the old women that they meet at the end, mm-hmm. um, just hearing about their lives and what they've been aspiring to do, like the old woman who has these plants that she wants to plant one day you know this green space this green world is gone and she she still carries the memories of that and the things that she wanted to do before her life was taken away from her that's just really deep without having to spend like to belabor those points yeah i think there's something really interesting in the way that it treats these captives as captives as individual and not as the cargo who they might be treated as in a movie that was more focused on the cars. Mm. And also how the two contrasting versions of femininity from these women and Charlize Theron, who is, you know, she's got a shaved head. She's incredibly masculine in a lot of ways, but she has a femininity to her that is not uh, at odds with what she's able to do as a hero. And that these women, even though they're dressed in kind of gauzy white dresses, like very inappropriate for the desert and have very few survival skills, do manage to be useful and heroic in their own way and in really distinct ways. And that, I mean, so many times you get a big action movie that just has the one girl and, you know, not to pick on Avengers, but that's the latest example. <laughs> and this has many of them who do serve many different purposes within the narrative. 
even though it's, you know, 90% male cast, the women really have a strong, uh, you know, impact on the story that they have. Could, I think just combining what you were saying with what Patches was saying, just talking about their outfits, I think in any other movie, those outfits would seem like the choice of a leery executive who really just wanted some scantily clad women in the movie. But you, you get the, and it doesn't have to be explained to you here, that Mort and Joe had them live this way. This is all they own. This is what he yep. made them wear. Um, yep. And that I think while it does expose some flesh, that's part of the... What's going on here, uh, at the same time, you understand that it is uh, a sort of a shroud of their victimhood, of the lack of agency that they have. Um, and there's a great, great, great shot, uh, as simple as it is, of them clamping off their uh, uh, chastity belts, <laughs> yeah. um, which is really, it's just a great moment. Yeah. The, the other thing, the other aspect of this film that I really enjoyed that's kind of spoilery, I'm curious what you guys thought of Nicholas Houts and this whole Nux character and the war boys in general, because I was interested in that. You know, they're they're not just crazy suicidal warriors. They're, they they uh, bow down to a, a motor god. So you're asking what would survive in a post-apocalypse. I think that kind of adherence to a really cruel god is exactly what would survive. I mean, that's kind of how religious systems emerged when we were cavemen and not much further evolved than that. Like, if that's the one guy who's got the water and the resources... And he tells you that if you die in his name, you'll be taken to heaven. Like, what better do you have to believe in? And I like that the belief system doesn't really make that. Like, I don't really understand what they're getting out of the spray paint to the mouse. Like, that doesn't. That's never totally explained. But it's just like an atmospheric element that makes it seem just more real. Somehow. Well, that's something that uh, you know you compared it to Avatar, and I think another thing that makes that an apt comparison is that both movies do a lot of world building uh, that they they wisely understand that. Sometimes not explaining something actually goes a lot further than, you know, writing in some stupid line of dialogue that that invents what something's purpose is. It lends credence to a world that, uh, you know, if you came into our world, you would not immediately recognize that everything does, even if everyone did it. And I think it's sometimes like uh, the things you don't see in horror movies can be a lot more fun to be left to the imagination um, and, you know, you sort of understand that they are these crazy jihadists and that, that uh, this they're getting high on the fumes of the spray paint, whatever the case might be. Uh, but you certainly understand the, the ends, if not quite the means. And I think it, it really adds so much texture to this world that you're only given, you know, there's so little exposition. You still get so much of it. Ah, uh, this movie. It's, it rules. It's so, <laughs> it rules. so good. And just, I mean, just to like kind of swing back to, to the broad strokes as we get out here, but like all the action beats are so crazy. Like I was so happy to see them go through that, uh, that canyon and blow up rocks. Like there was such a thrill to seeing real and, and probably was supplemented with CGI in some way, but they definitely threw rocks down a canyon and built it up and like they exploded some shit. There was so much reality going on in this movie amidst it's, you know, peppered with CG or if there was CG going on, it was behind real black plumes of, of smoke. And oh God, I ate this shit up. I really want to see it with people who will cheer after the fucking action sequences the way they were meant to be received. I mean, at the end of that first act, that first chase that ends in the dust storm, I wanted to like stand up and like walk around for a minute. Like I was so thrilled and exhausted by it. And I, yeah, I, I would like to see it in better context. And also every character gets like a great kill or a great moment. You know, no, it's not, it's not really Tom Hardy's movie at all. I mean, he gets some pretty cool. Uh, he's he's sent every which way. He's on like Cirque du Soleil tour. 
by the end and, of the movie. And you know, here's a movie that is unafraid to actually commit to the grim character decisions that it makes. I think another point of contrast with the Marvel movies is uh, when a character dies in this movie, one of two things happens. A, it's unexpected, and B, they stay dead. Yeah. And, uh, Not only did they stay dead, their body is basically defiled by the yes. enemies and um, yeah. their enemies, I should say. I, I really, I, you know, I, I know it's a big world, takes all kinds and there's room enough for both kinds of things uh, and that it's not really just a binary where there's this and something else but but more of this and less of the other thing please I thought I, you were I really... gonna, so so more of this and less of pitch perfect 2 which is opening again no this no pitch perfect 2 <laughs> this is a, between this pitch perfect 2 and slow west this is a really phenomenal your movie. summer is not getting better than to, this. no, no. It's a great right time movies, but uh you know for years i think when people have been on my case and and sometimes rightly so, for the blind vitriol that I just get tired and sputters out uh, against superhero movies and whatnot. This is what I've been asking for. This is the antidote to that crap. And I, I have to think that someone out there or some part of a lot of people out there will see this and be like, okay, I it's, get time, it. it's time to move <laughs> on. Um, and then Ant-Man will happen. Oh, boy. Let's not think about Ant-Man and let's think more about Mad Max, which really is... The most purely entertaining thing. I mean, I guess Edge of Tomorrow is a really different movie, but maybe like a similar kind of it, like experience of giant summer movie made on a scale you can't quite believe of a story you don't know the ending to yet, and it's really maybe, but it doesn't seem reason. quite like Doug Liman's vision in the same way as George That's Miller. True. Like yeah. Mad Max Fury Road feels like someone getting away with it. Yeah, and it's yeah. a thrill, and, and, and we kind of need it to be a hit, huh? Yeah, I was going to say, do you? I feel like a lot of people are kind of preemptively prepared for this not to make any money. Well, I that's because we like it, so it won't, I, know. I assume. Well, I'm, I'm in that camp. I don't really think it will. I think it's going to make enough. I think, I think it's it going to make $159 million at the U.S. box office by the time all is said and done. Wow. Very specific. You can go on timeout.com and you can read my oh. predictions for how the top 20 blockbusters will all fare at the box office this summer. <laughs> wow. David I is put, a box office I expert. Fury yeah. Road. Oh, I am not, which I think is part of what's going to make the case kind of amusing. I think, I think uh, it's hilarious that you have to do this. Uh, no, I chose to do it. I, I, I thought it'd be fun as my guesses got further and further from reality uh, <laughs> over the course of the summer to, real, to look back and see how off the mark I was. Uh, but I predicted this would be the ninth highest grossing domestic film of the summer. Um, Ninth although, highest. Yeah, I do think that uh, this movie could do well internationally because there's not much talking in it. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, but, and also the Japanese, according to George Miller, love Mad Men. Yeah. So there you go. That's oh. that could be helpful. But uh, I think you know this may not have been a movie that was explicitly made for an international play, like something like San Andreas was. Uh, but I think uh, this could this could this will be interesting. And I don't Holding think the hope. first the first weekend won't tell the story. Mad Max, go see it. Give it your hard-earned money. I will probably Eve Ensler. She did it. She wants you to see it. Eve Ensler says go, and you will go. Hey, Baptist, what was this week's lightning round question? Yes, it was in honor of uh, Mad Max. Fury Road. What uh, what's your favorite car that isn't in a back to a, back to the future movie? I don't know. Did Dave assume that everyone would be picked picking the the DeLorean? I don't I don't get that. But I wanted to go with the cool kid answer and pick Biff's car. So I guess so. <laughs> uh, I'm part of the problem. Well, what are you going with, Katie? 
Um, God, yeah, you're right. There were really a lot of really good answers. But I was going to give a shout out to our girl Joanna Robinson, who just said systematic, hydromatic, and uh, then included a picture of grease lightning. Um, God, uh, I'm taking a few answers off the board with this, but uh, you know, th- this is not the year of our Time Lord. This is the year of a new James Bond movie, uh, and that's a lot more important to me because who cares about Back to the Future? The answer. Everyone, it was a rhetorical question. I don't want to hear your lip. I'm going to go with Alex uh, at Don Bibla. <laughs> and uh, let's see who else said something along these lines. Um, do, 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 do. I don't know if anyone Zoe did. Ekman, oh, Hedros, okay. uh, who both said James. Well, I'll just go with what Alex said, which is whatever James Bond is driving, which is I like that. the correct answer. <laughs> um, many people said the Bluesmobile, which is what I was going to pick originally earlier this week, but I thought I talked about the blues brothers too often. So I had to go with carpool, obviously. Um, But really I'm going to go with at Spence Nicholson, who said Sam Raimi's Oldsmobile, which appears in, I believe every Every one of his films, even the ones where an Oldsmobile should not be like army of darkness. I think he included like the carburetor for it in Oz great and powerful, powerful. Yes. There's always a way to get that car. And I believe it was his mother's car. (laughs) Yep. And it became his, um, and it's in every movie. And actually, you should go to one of my favorite websites on the internet, which is the international or the internet movie car database, which <laughs> uh, tracks car pictures from every movie. And the and their library is quite vast. Uh, and if you want to see the Oldsmobile, Sam Raimi's Oldsmobile, and all these movies, internet car or movie car database is, is the way to go. It's such a great site. Wow, what a great idea for a website. It's a great idea for a website if you like cars, I guess. I mean, it's just every car in every can I movie. search by movie title, though? You can. You can. Oh, okay. Search by movie. Search by car. If you want to find every one of your childhood cars in a movie, that's an option. Really just great site. So useful for research. Wow. Yeah, it uh, includes the shitty Yugo that Michael Sarah drives in Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, <laughs> which was going to be a choice I was going to make. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Of course, that classic. I love that movie. Anyway. Anyway, anyway, that does it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back next week reviewing Tomorrowland. It's summer movie season. We actually know ahead of time what we're going to review for a while, which is a good feeling. Uh, In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches. I'm the senior writer of Esquire.com, and I am on Twitter at Mr. Patches. I'm David Ehrlich. I am the associate editor, uh, film editor of Time Out, New York, and the editor-at-large of Little White Lies, I will retroactively quasi-apologize for mansplaining over, <laughs> or man-talking over Katie, but I will say... Over it, me talking about Eve Ensler. Right. I know. But, mansplaining. The most egregious <laughs> of Two things. One, uh, that story seems a little convenient. Not Katie telling it, but... Uh, <laughs> two, it helped the narrative of our review, and for that, I will never apologize. This meta story about me overcoming the shackles of you talking over me. It's really what this entire <laughs> there's a there's about. an ARG hidden below <laughs> the fighting in the wow. world episodes. Watch out for the goat man, he'll explain <laughs> everything. Okay, uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at vanityfair.com or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H, where I will be mansplained to for the rest of time. Uh, thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. Stand by, my man.